Okay, well, good morning. We're going to continue our Bible study on the epistle of Paul, the apostle to the Romans, and we're getting into uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, and I want to remind us that this is a very long section. Uh, it actually does not end at the end of the chapter. The, the, the chapter divisions of the Holy Bible and the verse numbering are not inspired they were not originally written like this, and sometimes they're helpful. Most of the time they are helpful, but a lot of times they're not. And so the, the, the purpose of verses 18, chapter 1, verse 18 through 32, all of chapter 2 and chapter 3 down to verse um, 26 is one thought, and that is that Paul is is addressing the issue of how in the world can God forgive guilty sinners and remain righteous himself? Why, why does he not become an unjust judge because he forgave our sin? Because the Old Testament teaches that whoever pardons the guilty is a partaker of his evil deeds. And... So this was a huge issue, and believe it or not, it's still a huge issue with most of the religions of the world. Uh, in fact, it's got a name. It's called the greatest theological conundrum. And Islam cannot answer the question. Judaism cannot answer the question. Buddhism or Hinduism cannot answer the question. Taoism cannot answer the question. Uh, Shintoism cannot answer the question. Those who worship Confucius cannot answer the question. The only people who can answer the question of how God can forgive guilty sinners and remain righteous himself is Christianity. That's the only religion that has the answer because only Christianity has Jesus as the sacrificial lamb. And that is the answer because Jesus, God punished our sin on Jesus. Therefore, he doesn't have to punish us. But that's because we have Jesus, and they don't. So, but we're but it's too long of a of a of a of a of a of verses. There's too many verses to try to deal with all at once. We're going to get lost and forget what we're even talking about. So. I've broken it up like most people do. We're going to look at verses 18 through 32 of chapter 1 through the end of chapter 1. Then we're going to look at a few verses at a time of chapter 2. Then we're going to get into chapter 3. And so we're, we've, been, we've been going through chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, and we're now at uh, the second division that I divided this section up in, and that's verses 20 through 24 which I have entitled the first exchange. There's, there's two exchanges that have been made here in this passage, and they're ungodly exchanges. They're ungodly swaps that were made. So let's go before the Lord in prayer as we begin this lesson this morning. Father, only you are God. Only you are perfectly righteous. And Lord, we are beneath you. We, you are holy, and we are striving to be holy because you have commanded us to be holy. But Lord, we fail many times in our effort to be holy. We fail in many times in our effort to obey you. And so we know we can come to Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. And we know, God, that 
you can pardon us and cleanse us to the uttermost. And we praise you for that. And we ask God that you would help us now as we examine this section of your word, that we look closely at this and that we understand it in its proper context so that you may be glorified and that we may be edified. Guard my mouth and my tongue and my mind that I will not speak that which is not true and help me, O God, to preach what is right. Help these that you have gathered here this morning and those that are watching by means of the internet and those who will watch at some later point. Give them eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to believe. In Jesus Christ's most precious name, amen. Now normally when verses 18 through 32 is written, uh, people use it as just to bash homosexuals over the head. Um, and that's kind of primarily the way it, it, it has been used. But this passage has more to do with than simply homosexuality, which is a sin according to God. And, and so um, I want to look at it in the, in the context that every lost person in some way or the other uh, makes this exchange. So let's look at the first exchange on, on, on page 29. Look at, let's, let's look at Romans 1, 20 through 24. Sister Charlotte, if you would read that, please. Romans chapter 1, verses 20 through 24. Page 29 of your handout. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, <clears throat> and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Okay, so the first exchange, they exchanged, verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image. And back in the first century, it was in the form of a corruptible man, of birds, of four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. So these are idols. They're, the images are idols. And so we are told not to, not to make any idols. We are told not to carve them or paint them or design them in any way, shape, or form. And the big, the big argument between the Eastern Orthodox and the Roman Catholic Church seems to be whether you can have 2D images or 3D images. And 2D images are called icons, they're paintings, and 3D images are called statues. And so the Roman Catholic Church has, has, has uh, 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 acquiesced to having statues while the Eastern Orthodox has paintings. That seems to be the big conflab between those two major groups there. But that's just ridiculous on the surface. If you are illiterate and you're not able to read, then images have value because they help to explain what you're talking about to some extent but we are not to produce an image of god and and so people have struggled with that all through the centuries uh i know down here in the south back in the early part of the night of the 20th century people were against 
mirrors, hanging a mirror on the wall because that, that, that produced an image of a, of a man created in the image of God. And so they didn't like mirrors and all kind of superstition and all kind of weird beliefs uh, circulated down here in the South. Um, um, a lot of people have paintings of Jesus on their wall. A lot of people think that's blasphemy to have a painting of Jesus. Um, I had a painting of Jesus on my wall uh, when I was in business for myself. I thought it was a beautiful portrait of the Lord and, and never thought about it in any uh, real historical manner. Just it was, I'd rather have a picture of Jesus than have a picture of the president or some other person or some other thing. So I was trying to testify for the goodness of God to my clients that I had. But as I did research on the painting, the painting was, uh, was painted by a German named Salman in 1940. It's called The Head of Christ. And if you notice in that painting, he has Aryan features. He has blue eyes and an Aryan nose and and hair that looks like an, uh, a European. And I can assure you Jesus didn't look like that because Jesus was a Jew. And if he had looked strange, he would have stood out in the crowd by his strangeness, by his appearance being different than everybody else's. But when Josephus actually saw Jesus, uh, he saw him teaching in, a, in, a, in the center of a town and he wrote about it and, he, and it was matter of fact what he wrote. And he said there was nothing about him that made anybody take notice of him. And that's what Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 53, that there was no comeliness about him. There was no beauty about him. So he was just like an average Jew of the first century. That's what he looked like. And, and how dark his skin was is irrelevant to me. I'm going to worship down at his feet because he died to save my soul. He's my savior. And I couldn't care less whether he's really really dark or, or light-skinned or whatever couldn't care less about any of that i want to worship jesus the biblical true son of god but um so but people have a problem with that painting uh, not just because of that what i said but because it's portraying an image of god in jesus christ and so you you've got lots of people that won't that think that's terrible you got other people that think they're magnifying the Lord by having paintings. And I'm not going to get in the middle of that dispute because it's silly. So, but, but don't, if you, if you feel like you shouldn't have one, then don't. And if you feel like you're trying to glorify God by having one, then go, go for it. But just realize that some of these portraits are not accurate. Just realize that. But uh, all throughout history, men have created images and idols. And today, we may not carve a totem pole like they did, like Abraham did. Um, we may have other types of idols like money or sex or possessions or earthly power or people that we love and admire could be our, our um, idol. We have sports idols. We have po political idols. We have movie star idols. We have... We have rich people idols, wealthy people that are idols to us. And so our heart is a factory that churns out new and innovative idols every day. And so you have to be aware of your own heart and you have to understand the danger of idols, that idols will always disappoint you because they're not God. And if you start worshiping your wife or your husband or if you elevate people above, they're able to... to 
to exist, sooner or later they're going to disappoint you. And when your idol disappoints you, you hate them. So your love turns very quickly to hate when your idol disappoints you. And this is why so many people say they hate God. And it's because they put this idol of who they thought God was in their own mind. They manufactured a God in their own image and in their own likeness. And sooner or later, that manufactured God disappointed them because he didn't exist. He never existed. And the real true God didn't do what they thought God should do. And so they get mad at God and pout and take their ball and go home. That's... You know, we spank children for acting that way. And so when adults, I have no problem with children acting childish, but when adults act childish, you got a problem. So on page 30, we, we, we looked about the uniqueness of man. And this has to do with how we are to understand our own relationship with God. There are two major doctrines that are hardly ever even mentioned anymore in church today. And if they are mentioned at all, it's usually in passing, and they don't really get into any depth. But there's two major issues, two major doctrines that 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 we need to understand, and that is the doctrine of God, which is theology proper, who God is, what does the Bible reveal, what did God reveal in Scripture about Himself, who God is, what God does, why God does what He does, what does God enjoy, what does God like, what is the the motivating the motivation behind why God does what he does. And then there is the doctrine of man that is called anthropology in, in science circles. And so if you don't know who God is and you don't know who you are, then it is almost guaranteed you're going to develop a man-centered theology concerning salvation and other issues. And the reason that's wrong and the reason that's destructive to you and not just a sin against God is because when you are, 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 are operating within a man-centered theology, you think that everything that God says and does and is about is about you. That you're the focus of God in the earth. And so all of God's actions and all of God's words are catered to your best interest. And that is, in, in, in me being as, as gentle as I can, that is blasphemy because that is in and of itself creating a, an idol of yourself uh, as, as the idol that you worship. And so I ask people this all the time, do you have a God-centered theology or a man-centered theology? And nobody ever tells me they have a man-centered theology. And so they all say, well, I'm, I'm, I think God is primary. Okay, great. Well, then I start furthering that question with other questions, and it's very it becomes very clear very quickly that the only reason why most people have a God-centered theology is because they think God has a man-centered theology. In other words, they're willing to put God first because they think God's going to put them first. And that's the reason they put God first. And I'm just, I'm just trying to tell you, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible's never taught that. The Bible will never teach that. The Bible teaches that God has a God-centered theology as well as we're supposed to have a God-centered theology. And so God puts himself first above us. And God knows. It, it's, let, me, let, me, let me try to use this in, a, in, a, in an example of parents. When you cross the street, a busy highway, 
you, you, you grab your little granddaughter's hand and you hold it. Now, the granddaughter may feel like you're stopping her from having fun. The granddaughter may feel like you're prohibiting her from running ahead and having and laughing and enjoying herself. What you're thinking is she's safe with me. These cars can pull out and these cars are going fast and I don't trust her to walk across there by herself because she doesn't know what she's doing. And I, she's safe with me. So the most important thing I can give my granddaughter at that moment is myself. Not a car, not a piece of candy, not a good time. Myself. I am the most important thing for my granddaughter at that moment. Now, she doesn't probably understand that, and so she may try to pull her hand away. And therefore, you've got to almost punish her in order to save her. And when I'm talking to my children, and, and then now I'm talking to my grandchildren about this, I say to them, I almost have to beat you up in order to help you. And I don't mean literally beating them up. I mean, I almost have to get on to you in order to try to assist you because you're so rebellious to what I'm trying to do. Well, that's exactly the way we are with God. God knows what he's doing. We're the ones that don't know what God's doing. We have no idea about the future. We really can't discern what's going on in the present because we're very limited in our vision and our mental capacity, and we've forgotten most of the past. But God sees the past, present, future all at once, and he knows what is best. And we really don't trust God because we can't see him, and so we think God's just trying to, he's a killjoy and just doesn't want us to have any fun. And so all these rules and all these regulations, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, is designed to not only keep us from sinning against him, so then he has to judge us, but it's to protect us from evil and danger and destruction. Left to ourselves, many of the, left to themselves, many ancient civilizations annihilated themselves. Entire civilizations were wiped out with venereal disease. Other, other, uh, there were a whole bunch of tribes of Indians in North America before the Europeans settled over here. And they weren't living in harmony with each other for the most part. They were hit, killing each other. They weren't protecting the environment with pristine environmental activities. They were polluting the rivers and the streams just like everybody else does. So they weren't these glorious godly beings. They were godless. They worshiped pagan gods, and they were self-centered like most people are. Now, that didn't give the, the European the right to massacre them. I agree with that, but, but that's what happened. But my point is, God has to threaten us in order to save us. And so, if you stop and think for a minute, that God wants us to be happier than we do. God wants us to have more joy than we want. God wants us to delight in him, find the fullness of our joy in him alone being glorified. And in order to do that, God has to rescue us from our sin. And in order to rescue us from our sin, God has to do all that Jesus did while he was here on the earth and then live and die and rise again 
so that our sin could be paid for. And if you ever want to, you say, well, I didn't know God was that serious about sin. Well, look at Jesus screaming on the cross. That's the, 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 the degree to which God is serious about sin. Because remember, he loved Jesus more than he loves you. He doesn't, you know, he, God does not love you more than he loves Jesus. That's just not true. God loved Jesus the most and the best. To God, Jesus is the treasure of the universe. He's supposed to be the treasure of the universe to us, but he is the treasure of the universe to God, the Father. So what he wanted the most, what he loved the most, what he cherished the most, he sacrificed. And the Bible says it pleased the Lord to crush him. So by crushing his own son, God, the glory of the greatness of the glory of the grace of God would be enjoyed throughout eternity by those that he redeems. That's why God created the world. That's why God did everything that he did, is to, man, is to display the greatness of the glory of the grace of God. And so in order for man to be the instrument by which that grace is showered, on which that grace is showered, man had to be unique. Man had to be different than a cow or a, or a rat or a sheep or a bird or a fish. And so on page 30 down at the bottom third, I have there's four, there's five different ways that, that man is unique from the other created beings. There's the uniqueness of how man was created. There is the triune Godhead was present in man's creation. There's the uniqueness of man's being. There's God commanded man to subdue and dominate the earth. He didn't tell cows to, to dominate the earth. He told man to dominate the earth. And then God holds man accountable for what he does. So, so we've gone over how the uniqueness in the way that God was created. And last time I told you that, that when God said, let us make man in the, in the first, by the time that Jesus was born, the Jews had almost gotten completely apostatized from the truth of the Old Testament. And they had developed a very intricate and elaborate uh, theology about angels. And, and they were, some of them were actually worshiping angels. Now, I'll show you how this comes to be. Everybody in the church today knows about angels to some extent. We know the word angels, and, and we don't really understand them very well, and we don't really understand what their purpose is. But So you got a guy, um, he's dead now, so I don't want to speak ill of the dead, but he was a very, very popular Christian musician. And in his church in California, somebody prophesied how important angels were to our daily activity. And so that began a Bible study about angels. And so everybody got well aware of angels. And, and then people began to pray about angels. And it wasn't long after that that people began to pray to angels. And then it wasn't long after that that they built a statue of Michael, the archangel, and they had it in their foyer their foyer, 
their foyer in the front of their church and people would go by and touch the angel statue so they could be blessed or healed or whatever. That's how this stuff comes about. We are religious people by nature. We're going to worship a rock. We're going to worship a lizard. We're going to worship Satan. We're going to worship ourselves, but we're going to worship somebody. The, the great Reformed theologian Bob Dylan wrote a song, You're going to serve somebody. And, and, and that's true. So you don't, you're never on your own. You're never on your own. I used to, I was telling Brother Vernon this morning before church that I used to say, and people still say this today, I quit saying it because I realized it wasn't true, that when I was lost, I was out there doing my own thing. That's not true. That's not true. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that when I was lost, I was a slave of sin. So I was driven by my slavery of sin. And my sin and my lusts dominated my life. Now I'm led by the Spirit of God and I'm a slave of righteousness. But I'm still a slave. And so positionally speaking, I'm a slave. Uh, uh, spiritually speaking, I'm, 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 I'm in the Lord and therefore I'm redeemed and, and therefore I'm a conqueror and all these other things. But but positionally speaking, I'm below God. I'm below angels. I'm a man. I'm a human being. I'm no match for Satan. And I, that's why it's just such a terrible waste of time for people to walk around all day long binding the devil. I mean, if you look out, you can see that somebody keeps letting him loose, even though you're binding him. And when you bind him, exactly how was he bound and how long was he bound and to what area was he bound? And it gets to be really silly after a while. But, but, the, but the Jews of the first century believed that when God said, let us make man, he was talking to the angels. And we know that's not true. We know that God was talking to the other two persons of the Trinity. And here's what it, so I'm on page 32 at the top. And uh, just Colin, you feel like reading? No? Huh? You do? You don't. Brother Vern, Genesis 1, 27 at the top of page 32. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, the, the account of Genesis 1 and 2 are not two different accounts. I don't believe that. I believe that, that uh, chapter 2 is just a more elaborate account of chapter 1 because he's, he's going forward in time, and he says God, he created him, and then male and female, he created them. Okay, but, but Eve hadn't even been created yet. And so... He created Adam in his own image and in his own likeness. And then look at Genesis 2, verse 7, Sister Charlotte. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Okay, now he didn't do that with a cow. He didn't do that with a horse. He didn't do that with a pigeon or a bird or a fish. He breathed into man's nostrils. So the painting by Michelangelo where God's touching the finger of Adam is, is wrong. Theologically, it's wrong. Biblically, it's wrong. He breathed into, he gave mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation to Adam. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Now, how God did that, we don't know because God doesn't have a mouth. 
So there presents a, a, an interesting problem. But he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So that is the breath of life. That is the breath of life. And when he did that to Adam, it was both spiritual life as well as natural life. Now, I've heard many preachers preach. In fact, most preachers I hear preach talk about when God told Adam, don't eat of that fruit. If you do, you're going to die. That God really didn't mean that like he said it because it took another seven, eight hundred years for Adam to die. Well, he died spiritually right then. He died spiritually right then. Now, the mystery of why people live longer, why churches exist longer than their, than their doctrine is pure, I liken this to you turn a bicycle upside down when you're a child and you do the, the pedals like that and the back wheel starts spinning and then it, you get it real fast and then every, you can stop and the wheel's still spinning and then every once in a while you just give it a spin and it'll keep it going for as long as you just every once in a while give it a spin. So you've got churches all over the place that used to be right about their doctrine. They used to pursue holiness. They used to preach the gospel. They used to preach justification by faith alone. And they're packed out every Sunday by thousands of people. And you know good and well they're not preaching the truth. So why are they packed out? Well, it's that, it's that inertia because they, use, they have a history. They have a history. When I talk to people of why they converted to Roman Catholicism, why in the world would you go into that bondage? And they say, because of the history of it. And so, so there's stability in that. And that's why people convert to Mormon, I mean, uh, to Islam, is they're on drugs and they're, they're lazy and they're, they're smoking crack all day long. And then they get, they go to, they get arrested, they go to jail and they get converted in American prisons to Islam. And they start waking up early in the morning and praying and they start having order in their life. And they think that's the, the spirit of God and they think that's salvation. It's just order. They could have joined the military and done the same thing. So they, they, they're attracted to the order of it. They're attracted to the histor, historicity, his, historicity of it. And, and it's not that anything going on there is even of God anymore. And, and this is why you have people in church that they've been going to church for 30 years and they have no idea what they believe or why they believe it. So they're operating on inertia. And, but God wrote Ichabod over the door of those churches long time ago. And God has departed the temple. God has left them. And they're on their own. And I remember back in the 80s, I was in this meeting with some missionaries from China. China, the China, <clears throat> the Chinese church was sending missionaries from China to America to try to evangelize the Americas. Back in the 80s, they thought that we were so pagan and so worldly that they thought they needed to send missionaries over here to convert us. And that's, what, 50 years ago. So 40 years ago, 30 years, 35 years ago, whatever it was. So I, after the service, I went up and asked one of those guys, I said, well, what do you think, what is your honest opinion about the American church? When you look out over the horizon and you see the American church, and you see all of these mega churches and all of these tens of thousands of people attending a church, uh, for example, that Andy Stanley pastors, who, who doesn't believe the Bible's the Word of God anymore. Um, why would people gather to, to be in a church like that? And so this Chinese missionary to the United States told me, he said, it is absolutely fantastic what you guys can do without the Holy Spirit. 
There's so much money in the United States. There's so much success in this country that you can worship a rock and, and, and become a millionaire and write books and tapes and people will follow it. It's got nothing to do with the Bible. It's got nothing to do with Christianity. It's just a religion of your own making. And it's so popular that you can become very wealthy. Our, my generation, born in the last half of the 20th century, is the only generation in the history of the world that has developed millionaire pastors from their ministry. It never happened before now. And I know the argument for all you guys out there that are health, wealth, and prosperity people that that's a good thing. It's not a good thing. Uh, along with that tremendous transfer of wealth is this reality. I have never met the first person in 52 years of serving Christ that would openly admit that they love money. It's like it doesn't exist anymore. Nobody thinks they're guilty of this sin. And yet we are in the lap of luxury. We, we, we're so neck deep into the love of money, we can't even recognize it anymore. So it's inertia that allows these things to go on. It's not the Spirit of God. It's not truth. It's not new revelation. It's inertia. Somebody a long time ago loved God. When you look at what the Episcopal Church in the United States stands for today, you say, how in the world could a Christian go to that church? And then you read the Book of Common Prayer that is their staple. Somebody loved God that wrote that book. Somebody was anointed of the Holy Spirit that wrote those prayers down. That's their history, but it's not their present. And so we have to understand, beloved, it doesn't matter what you used to do. It doesn't matter what you used to be about. It doesn't matter what you used to believe. It matters what you're doing right now, what you believe right now, and what you're a part of right now that counts. So God breathed into man's nostrils and man became a living being. And so that's the breath of life. And I said back then it was both spiritual and natural. And that makes man to be unique among all his creation. So God was more intimately involved in man's creation than with anything else that he made. God spoke to create man. Yes, he did. Like he spoke to create light and the earth and dirt and whales and sea and creatures. He spoke it, yes. But then God also went about to form man from the dust of the ground, and he didn't do that with anybody else. And then after God had formed this image, this image of himself, he breathed into man's nostrils what Moses infallibly called the breath of life, which is the soul or some people call it the spirit of man. And Job speaks quite a bit about the soul or the spirit of man, and we went over that last week. So I want to go down to number two in the middle of page 33. The triune Godhead was present in the creation of man. So when, God, when Moses quoted Almighty God in Genesis 1 and 26 to say, let us make man, he used the plural form of the noun for God. And by the way, every Every form of the noun for God in Greek or Hebrew is always masculine. There is, it's always masculine. So there is a masculinity associated with God the Father. He's not God the Mother. It doesn't say she or her. It says he and him. There is a masculine aspect of God. And I'm not saying that God is like a man or that we're like God. And that's not my point. 
My point is that when God decided to describe himself, he used masculine words. Now, when it says, let us make man, there are three possible reasons for that uh, phrase to be used. Number one, it was an accepted manner in which English royalty spoke and the way they wrote about themselves. Okay, they'd say, we are, we, are, let's look at what we're doing. You, you, presidents talk like this because they're not just talking about them, them physically themselves. They're talking about his administration. So they say, we are doing this. That's not pleasing to us. If you, if you notice when you have news reports, it'll say, the White House said, well, I promise you that that building didn't say anything. So, so I want a name. I want a name. The White House reported today. No, it didn't. Who, who reported it? Nobody calls the press on that. I would. So it's an accepted manner in which English royalty spoke and wrote about themselves. Number two, God was referring to the angels. Or number three, God was addressing all three persons of the Trinity. The problem with option number one is that neither the grammar of the Hebrew language itself nor the ancient customs of the Jews followed that rule. The problem with option two is that this would suggest that angels were also made in God's image because it said in our image, which is taught nowhere in Scripture. Nowhere does the Bible teach that angels were made in the image of God. And that leaves only option three as an intelligent, reasoned understanding of this mystery. And to believe that all three persons of the Trinity were present in creation is also confirmed elsewhere in Scripture. God, the Bible says God the Holy Spirit was there. Brother Vern, look at Genesis 1, verse 2, top of page 34. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the water. Now that word moving comes from a Hebrew word that means hovering. It's a, it's a word likened unto a father as he looks into the crib of his infant child, making sure that the child is okay. There's a hovering over the crib. The Holy Spirit hovered over the waters. And God the Son was also present at creation. Sister Charlotte, look at John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Okay, the Word was with God, across from God, and the Word was God. You're sitting across from me, but you're not me. Okay, so there's a mystery there, that the Word of God was across from God the Father, and yet the Word was God. So that shows deity in a different person. Now, the, the, Mor the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witness, not Mormons, Jehovah's Witness and other groups say we're worshiping three gods. No, we're not. We're worshiping the one true God who is manifested in three distinct persons of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Um, and then verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. So there was never a moment that Jesus did not exist. Now, Jesus was not always called Jesus. He was named Jesus when he was birthed by his mother Mary. So before Jesus was birthed as a real human being, in all aspects he was a true human being. 
what was Jesus called? There's two, two possibilities here. Right here it says he's called the word. Yeah. And then what else was he called? When God the Father looked at Jesus, who hadn't been born yet, what did he call him? God. God, that's right. That's right. And that is why David wrote in Psalms, he said, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make all of the enemies a footstool for, my, for your feet. So the Lord said to my Lord. So Adonai said to Adonai. Yahweh said to Yahweh. Yahweh said to my Yahweh. Yahweh said to my Adonai. Yahweh said to my Savior. So there's deity there and there's closeness to God. This is, so there's no, see, Simplicity would say, you're looking for a verse that says, God is in three persons of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There's no verse like that in the Bible. So you got to know there's two things about the Bible. The Bible says things. Thou shalt not kill. That's what it says. But then the Bible teaches things. So there's no particular verse that teaches about the Trinity. But when you put all of the verses about God the Father together with all of the verses about God the Son together and all of the verses about God the Holy Spirit together and you look at them, you come across with God is one in his essence and is eternally manifested in three distinct persons of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, I would suggest to you it's going to take you a while to do that. And all while you're trying to figure this out, people are going to be condemning everything you're trying to do. And they're going to be attacking you from every side. So it took literally decades for a couple of guys in the ancient church to come up with the doctrine of the Trinity. And that's why. Because nobody had done it before. And everybody was telling them they were wrong about everything they were doing. And you just can't function like that very well. Uh, so, so now... Here's a, here's a here's a something you need to remember. Those of you that's trying real hard to gr bring people to Jesus, and you're trying real hard not to offend them. That seems to be the big thing in the 21st century. Well, don't offend them because then you drive them away and they won't come. Well, they're offending God every day by their sin, so it's their turn to be offended for a while. That's one answer to that. But but I don't want to be rude to people. I'm not trying to be a know-it-all or get in their face all the time. That's not what I'm trying to be about. But, but here's what you got to understand. There is not one single major doctrine of the Christian faith that is not routinely condemned as being false. Even now. Even now. There are millions of people all over the world who do not believe in the Trinity. And they think we're, we're, we're in paganism because we do believe in it. There are millions of people all over the world that don't think Jesus was God. There are millions of people all over the world that don't think Jesus was a man. There are millions of people in the world that don't think Jesus died and rose again. I, I don't think we could get saved if we're not offended. Exactly. Because God is who he is and we who we are. But, but this is why ultimately the Holy Spirit has to reveal these things to you. Right. And I know that's extremely subjective and people don't like subjective things because there's no objectivity to it. But that's, that's why do you believe the Bible's the Word of God? Because, because the Holy Spirit revealed it to him. Now, I could tell you all about the archaeological discoveries. I could tell you, but, but people disagree with that too. 
People disagree with evidence in front of their face. So I'm, you're never going to, in my opinion, I believe in apologetics and I believe it's a branch of Christianity that needs to be done, not by me. I'm not in it at all. I'm not qualified to be in it. I don't really care anything about it because I'm, I'm operating from, from a position. I am already assuming that the Bible is true. I'm starting it. I'm not going backward beyond that point. I'm not, if you want to talk to me about that, I can give you some references of some people that might can help you. But the Bible is true, and therefore, because it is true, what does it say? And, and say, well, Brother Blair believes this. Brother Blair teaches this. Brother Blair, baloney. The Bible says this, and I'm just repeating it. And if you can, if you can show me where I'm off base in the Bible, I'll be happy to repent because I don't want to be wrong more than you don't want me to be wrong. Okay. Okay. Jesus said when he was here, if I be lifted up, I shall draw all men unto me. God is holy. God is righteous. God is, as we call him, otherness. We are not. Everybody will admit they've sinned. Right. So in order for us to be put back, in lack of a better word, right in right relationship with God, something has to be done. Okay. Beyond me. Yes, yes. Okay, Jesus, we believe, is that perfect something. Because if he were not, he could not have paid the price for us. He would be no different than we are. Right. So as we say, we believe God's work. And so... We read every Sunday, not every Sunday, every second Sunday of every month from Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. And that's the only way that that we can be put back is believing. Right. Okay, and then right on down below that it says that we preach the word and that's the way. So we as Christians, as we are witnesses, we have been changed. We know how simple we are. Mm -hmm. We go and we preach that word, mm -hmm. and we leave that with the Lord. We mm -hmm. leave that with the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. We leave that with Jesus. Mm -hmm. We're going to be refuted, mm -hmm. but we have to stand firm. Right. That's the bottom line to me. Right. I, I don't, whatever I speak, as long as I'm biblical, right. then I leave that with him. Amen. Yes, everybody's going to refute it. But I have to live with that and go yeah, on. Exactly. And you're not doing wrong because they refuted it. Right. That's not some failure on your part. No man can come to the Father. There you go. Okay. Now, see, that's a subjective statement. What does that look like? What does that mean? And so there's no, and you have to do that because of how God made us. He didn't make us to be robots and he didn't make us to be like dogs where it's hardwired into our brain. He made us to be thinking creatures and reasoning creatures. No, what, what I mean is, what I mean is, um, we are appealing. We have to appeal not to the intellect of man, but we have to appeal to the soul of man when we're preaching, and that's why we have to convince them they're lost. The first step in evangelism is not 
come to Jesus. It's you're, you're, you are going to hell. You're lost. And they don't believe that or they don't believe it. Exactly, exactly. And so they. Right, 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 right. And so my, my calculation, this is just me doing this. Jesus preached five times more about hell than he did heaven. So five to one, if you, if you preached, if you preach 10 minutes about how good Jesus is and how wonderful it is and God loves you and God wants, God, God's got a plan for your life and come to Jesus and he loves you, then you should preach 50 minutes on hell, damnation, sin, and, and the wrath of God. And, and we don't, we don't do that because we don't want to offend the people. Okay. God is love. God wouldn't do that. God is holy. And he's righteous. Right. That's the difference. Right. I agree. He's not you know, just love. He we, is love, but he's not only he's not just uh, only love. Love is preached everywhere. Right. Right. That that's an easy believe it. And because he love again, that's me on on the throne rather than God. And they don't really God mean is, the word love, they mean leniency. Right, exactly. Right. Exactly. So God lets me do whatever I want to and it's okay with him. I had a man recently tell me, Well, I got a deal worked out with God and he's with me and and I said, well, God doesn't make special deals with anybody. You've got to come by the way of the cross just like everybody else does. But the point I'm trying to make is I met this man in, uh, um, he used to live in a house that my father owned. That's how I met him. And he loves the Lord and he's trying. And his wife worked at an eye doctor's office. But... Um, I saw him in the store, and he said, Brother Blair, we're, we're having Bible study in my house now. I said, wonderful. He said, we got about 15, 20 people that come, and we're, once a week we're having Bible study. I said, what book are you studying? And he gave me the, some book by somebody that wrote a book. I said, you're not studying the Bible. You're studying a book about the Bible. He said, well, yeah, but it's about the Bible. I said, well, great. I would encourage you to study the Bible itself. And then use a book as as an exp help uh, help you understand the Bible maybe, but study the Bible. So anyway, he didn't agree with that. So then I saw him three or four weeks later, and he said, "Well, we ran into some problems because in in our study, he said uh, people started getting offended, and we don't want to do that. So we we had to back off." I said, "What are they offended about?" He said, "Well, you know, some people just don't." like the fact that Jesus is God. I said, oh, okay, and, and what was your response? He said, well, we just quit teaching that. So unity to those people, unity is more important than truth. They would rather keep friends with people, stay friends with people, than they would tell them the truth. But they're dooming those people to hell because they can't get saved unless Jesus forgives them and only God can forgive sin. So you'll see this morning how that is what the Bible calls the unpardonable sin. And, and it's not really a specific sin. And we're going to look at that in my sermon this morning. But the point is that you can't avoid controversy with Christianity because everything about Jesus is, was controversial and is controversial. Um, if, and, and see, I don't like to 
people say, well, if the Bible's true when it says this, well, I, that you've already given the doubt that maybe it's not true by saying if. I say, so since the Bible is true when it says this, now how should you respond? That's the issue. And so make no mistake about it, there has to be a response. There has to be a humiliation. There has to be a, 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 a repentance. There has to be a trusting. Now, um, okay, um, I guess, Sister Charlotte, you get to read Colossians 1.16. For by him, Jesus Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. What does that mean? All things have been created. Okay, all things have been created for through. or by, by Jesus. Jesus was the tool by which God created the, the universe. And that's by scripture in John chapter 1. Right. And then at the end of this verse, all things have been created through Jesus and what? For, For Jesus. Jesus. I hear most people talking about heaven like this. We're, we're, we'll walk on streets of gold. We'll have a mansion over in glory land. And we'll, we'll see our lost loved ones that's gone on, our saved loved ones that's gone on before us. And we'll worship Jesus forever. Okay. That's all about what you, what, what's Jesus going to be doing? Everything was created for him. Everything was created by him. Everything was created through him. So, I would suggest to you that heaven is infinitely better than the streets of gold and the pearly gates and, and, and being reunited with loved ones. Um, because let me try to tell you this, and I don't want to rock your world too badly, but the streets of gold and the pearly gates are in the city of New Jerusalem that's going to come out of heaven and sit down on the earth. That's what it says. So I don't know what heaven looks like. I have no idea what heaven looks like. I don't think there's 10 verses in the Bible that tell us how what heaven looks like. Most of the descriptions that we call about heaven are not in heaven. They're in the city of New Jerusalem that's coming down out of, out of heaven and sitting upon the earth. Now, what is that? Is that symbolic of heaven kissing the earth so that there's one? Is that symbolic of we're going to have access to both heaven and earth in the new age? I don't have a clue. There's whole denominations out there that have exploited this to the nth degree, explored it to the nth degree, and I'm not one of them. I'm just saying that God is better than heaven. Your goal should not be heaven. The Bible says we've been reconciled to God. Our separation from God is our problem, not streets of gold. Because you don't even understand that. The Bible says it's clear as crystal. Now, I've seen, I've seen where they manufacture gold, gold stuff. And they have these things, and they got gold, and they got all this stuff, and they're melting, smelting, and they're getting all the impurities out and everything. You can roll gold as thin as you want to. It's not clear as crystal. It's a metal. It's never going to be clear. And it's never pure. Not one says 99.9% 99 
999, right. It's always got something in it, right. So, plus pure gold is very soft. It has to, has to have other alloys to make it hard. So your gold ring, is the reason it's hard is because it's got something else in it beside gold. The point I'm trying to make is, over the centuries, we have just taken bits and pieces of the Bible and formed a doctrine out of it. And that's just the wrong way to go about doing that. And, and I'm trying my best to shoot holes in that because it's not true. And I want truth, right? So to believe that God was referring to all three persons of the Trinity in this statement about man's unique creation also serves to connect man's relationship with the entirety of the Godhead. Again, this is unique to man as no other part of creation has that kind of attachment to the fullness of the Trinity. Number three is the uniqueness of man's being, and this is really huge. Not only is man unique in the way that God made him and in the fact that only man has a relationship with all three persons of the Trinity, but man is also different from anything else in creation through the uniqueness of his being. For example, when God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit said, let us make man, he then went on to say how he was going to make man. Brother Vern, Genesis 1, 26b and 27. In our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And that little phrase at the end of verse 27 is why we're against trans, trans, uh, transgendered uh, ideas. Um, because he made them purposely male and he made them male and female on purpose. He didn't make a mistake. Men and women are different. Men are not better than women. Women are not better than men. Men and women are different, and they're different on purpose. So it is wrong for a woman to try to be a man. It's wrong for a man to try to be a woman. We should celebrate. Men should celebrate their masculinity, and women should celebrate their femininity. But manhood and womanhood is under assault in our day like we've never seen in the history of the world. And I said this 10, 12 years ago, that this was going to be the seminal issue of our day. What, what constitutes manhood and what constitutes womanhood? There is a concerted effort in this country right now to eliminate a class of human beings called woman, to completely eliminate them. And the distinctive attributes of, fe of femininity are being degraded and ignored and excused and belittled and marginalized. But the truth of the matter is that biologically, physically, emotionally, and even spiritually, women are different than men. They're, they're normally shorter than men, although there are exceptions to that. They normally have less blood in their bodies than men, although there are exceptions to that. Their upper body strength is not near as good as man's, although there are exceptions to that. But more importantly, in their being, there is a femininity to women that doesn't exist in men, and that's more than simply hormones. God made them male and female on purpose. And there's a masculinity to a man that is accursed at today called toxic masculinity. 
So I need to understand exactly what is toxic about men being masculine. What is toxic about that? That they're adventurous, that they want to blaze the trail, that they want to push ahead, that they're not afraid of risk, that they're ready to fight, that they're ready to defend, that they're ready to build, they're ready to create, they're ready to plant, they're ready to explore. That's in a man to do that. And you see it all the time, both in lost people and saved people. Why do people climb Mount Everest when there's so many of them going to die? And they'll say, because it is there. But it's, it's more than that. It's in them to do what can't be done. So we send men to the moon, not because it is easy, John Kennedy said, but because it is hard. And so we, we develop computer chips out of sand, the most plentiful ingredient on earth, out of silicone. And... And then we do all kinds of things that weren't done. And I was talking to Brother Robert, who's in the hospital with surgery. And he was um, talking about how the surgery. And I said, yeah, but 100 years ago, people just died. So within my lifetime almost, we've developed surgeries and techniques that save people that used to die. Right. That's the common grace of God. Um so that's, there's a, and why do women, you could, and they did, the, they, the, your federal government with your tax dollars did this experiment. This is back in the late 80s and early 90s. And they took some children and they never said anything about male or female to them. And they gave little boys dolls to play with. And they gave little girls toy guns to play with. And the little boys were hiding behind the couch holding the doll going bang, 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 bang. And the little girls wrapped up the, 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 the rifle in a blanket and was doing this with it. Because it's in a woman to nurture life. It's in her. It's part of her DNA. And she looks for that. Why, after 6,000 years of women making terrible mistakes with men, why do women fall for the same things today? Because he said he loved me. They, they want to be loved. There's not a woman on earth that doesn't want to be loved. And there's not a man on earth that doesn't want to be respected. And there used to be a, a lady in this church who is no longer here. And she used to be a prostitute and I would ask her about that she walked Division Street and where uh, the football stadium is there's areas back there that are now they're crack houses and all kind of things and we've been out there with the with the trailer that we have in the back preaching and singing gospel music in that area and passing out tracks and I asked her what kind of people pick you up and take you somewhere and she said wealthy men Poor men don't have the money. He said, you don't want to be with poor people because they can't do anything. You want to be with wealthy people. And she said, if wives would ever understand this, that we wouldn't have a job. 40% of the time I'm with a man, he doesn't want sex. He wants me to talk to him. He wants me to listen to him. He wants me to tell him he's handsome. He wants me to tell him he's the best thing I've met in a long time, that it's amazing how smart I, he, they are and everything. They, what, are they, they're, what are they craving? They're craving respect. They're not getting respect at home from their wives. He said, if wives would just respect their husbands, I'd be out of a job. 
Women go to the barbershop to talk about their husbands. Men go to the bar to talk about their wives. Well, here's a hint. This is a real deep, powerful marriage counseling technique. Why don't we get women to talk to men? Men talk to men. Women talk to women. Why don't we get... See, it's harder to do that, isn't it? And it's harder because they're different. They look at life differently. Their brains are wired differently. They see life in a different way. And if the man had an ounce of sense, he would realize that the wife is God's gift to him to help sanctify him so that he can understand what is beautiful and lovely and sweet and nice and precious and, and lovely. And the woman had an ounce of sense. She would see that her husband is there to talk about facts and, and reality and truth and, and, and safety and security and 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 in in that there is the whole and and men are not going to be women and women are never going to be men and for the united states military to put women in foxholes is one of the dumbest things they've ever done in the history of this country and we're going to start losing wars we're going to lose wars we're not used to losing we're we're used to winning i don't care what kind of gun you got in your hand there's not a man on earth that's going, to do, that's going to sit in the foxhole while the woman next to him gets captured and is getting gang raped in another building over there. He'll lose his mind trying to go in there and rescue her. One of the reasons why men, men are lazy, maybe you picked that up, but women want the door held open for them. They want to know they're lovely. They want to know that they're beautiful. They want to know that they look nice. They want to know that their man loves them more than any other woman on earth. It's good to say those things. And to try to mess this up is the height of stupidity. And so I cry out against it. And not only my from this pulpit, but at home and the way I treat my own wife. People come to me all the time and say, I pity your wife. Man, you're so hard about this stuff. I said, go ask her if she feels oppressed. Go ask her if she feels, go ask my granddaughter if she feels hindered or oppressed. So male and female, he created them. Nothing else in all of the inspired record of creation was created in the image and likeness of God except man. Bingo. Nothing else. You, it, is, it is a lie what's in the biology books of the Harrison's County high schools where they tell you that you're no different than a chicken or a salamander or, or a raccoon or a, or a fox. That's not true. That's a lie. You are unique in this world. Once again, man is unique in this truth and is therefore said to bear the imago Dei. That's Latin for the image or the face of God. And part of what it actually means when we say that man was made in God's image is found in eight aspects of man that are completely unique to him. Number one, man's personality. Number two, man's spirituality. Number three, man's ability to love and enjoy God. Number four, man's self-determination or will. Five, man's commission to subdue and rule over the earth. Six, man's immortality. Seven, man's behavior was always restricted. And number, number eight, God holds man accountable. All of this makes up the uniqueness of human beings. So let's look at each one briefly. Number one, man's personality. And that's mankind. Mankind, both male and female. Man was not created as a machine who was simply programmed to respond to certain stimuli. 
nor was he created as a mere animal that is driven by an unconscious instinct. Man was originally created as a full-grown, mature adult who had no sinful past to be forgiven of, no childhood, and who did not go through adolescence. Man was created as a thinking, personal, and self-conscious creature. Right now, my, my little grandson that's, that lives with us has just turned 11. He turned 11 last week. Now, he's getting to an age now where his body's going to start changing. And he's becoming a young man. Now, my job as I'm not his father, and I don't intend to be his father. He's got a father. He's got a mother. And because of certain circumstances, I'm raising him. But it, we're going to have to have the talk. And the talk about why he's a man and why he's got the parts of a man and what all that's about. And how godly men respond to that reality. And, and sadly, I remember my father coming in and sitting on the bed with me. I was in the fifth grade. And he came in and started talking. He started out by saying, you know, your mother and I love each other very much. And I looked at him and I said, are you going to talk to me about sex? And he said, yeah. I said, don't bother. I already know. Because I learned it in, in school. I learned it at, 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 on the streets. Because my father did a lousy job of preparing me for, for, for fatherhood and husbandhood. Our job as parents is to prepare our boys to be husbands and fathers. Our job as parents is to prepare our daughters to be wives and mothers. And we're not doing that. We're preparing them to be successful. We're preparing them to make money. We want them to be educated so they can get a good paycheck. And I want a good paycheck too, but not at the expense of losing your soul. That's the love of money that I'm talking about. Education was never designed to make you an atheist. Education is to help you believe in God better and more. Genesis 2, verse 7. I assume it's your turn, Sister Charlotte. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now, if you get, if you get literal here, you ever tried to build anything out of dust? you got to mix a little something. you got to mix water with it. Yeah, and so we call man, God made clay. Well, it doesn't say that, and it's the Hebrew word for dust. So I don't know how you get that out of that. But anyway, number two, man's spirituality. Unlike anything else in all creation, man was created with the very image of the immortal God stamped on his soul. So what does that mean since God the Father is immaterial, meaning he has no physical body? It primarily means that man is a fully spiritual being like his creator. So man has a soul a spirit that was originally given to him at the moment God created him. Brother Vern, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, we're going to wear these verses out. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay. Um, huh? Yeah, if we read it enough, that's right. You'll get all kind of good things out of it. You keep reading it. Now, 
one of the things that I want to talk to you about, about this being in the image of God, means that every human being, every single human being on earth should be respected and deserves dignity. Even the ones going to hell, even the ones worshiping a false god. And we should treat people the way we want people to treat us, not the way people treat us, but the way we want people to treat us. So you've got to go first, since you're the one that's got the Holy Spirit living in you. So you, you, you don't get in people's faces and scream and, and holler them down. That's not the way to convert people. Um, this is why when people get real mad at somebody and they're talking about how terrible this person is and how terrible Nancy Pelosi is and how terrible the Democrats are, I said, why don't we just shoot them? Let's just go up there and shoot them all. Let's just kill them all. Kill them all. And see, that's wrong. That's wrong. Well, I didn't want to do that. Well, what do you want? You're yelling at them and screaming at them. You'll say anything good about them. You say they're devils, they're demon-possessed, blah, 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 blah. What would you do to a demon-possessed man if you actually saw one? Would you want him to be saved? He's made in the image and the likeness of God. You can't undo that. You can't unring that bell. And I have wondered, I have wondered, uh, it, it, it has bothered me because I know what happened in the 60s when the Church of Jesus stopped treating black people like they were second-class citizens. And it changed the country because that was sin. But the same degree of success has not happened with abortion. Now, the Supreme Court knocked down Roe v. Wade, great, but now it's back to the states, and the states are still wanting to kill babies because the politicians know that the people of that state want that. My question is, why do the people want that? I mean, it's amazing to me. So why is God not honoring our efforts as much as he did with the other? And maybe it's because we're treating the other side like they're the enemy. Now you say, well, they are the enemy. No, they're not. The devil is, the, I have no human enemies on this earth. None. Zero. I don't hate any man. I can't do that. I can't exact vengeance on anybody ever for anything. I am never given the allowance to hate other human beings. Because if I hate them, I can't love them. And if I don't love them, I'm not of God. Now, but look what they're doing. Okay, what they're doing is wrong. But if, if, if I hadn't got saved, I'd have been doing it with them. There's one thing wrong with every wicked person on earth and is that they're not saved. They don't know Jesus. And you're not going to get them saved by screaming at them. You're not going to get them saved just because you vote them out of office. Vote them out of office. Fine, let's do that. But then you still need to, to, to preach the gospel to them. And you can't do it in a manner that you're self-righteous. Because I can assure you, beloved, there is so much sin and blackmail and extortion and, and evil going on in the Republican Party, it would curl your hair to find out about it. They are not the salvation of our country. Jesus is the salvation of our country. This is where I get in trouble with conservatives. 
I do not believe in conservatism as the answer to our spiritual needs, any more than I believe government is the answer to family needs. Government can't put fathers in homes. And you look at the, you look at the black man in the 1930s and the 1940s in Harlem. Look at them. They're wearing coats and ties. They went to school. They were educated. They owned businesses. They dressed to the nines in a hot summer day. And they had 27% illegitimate birth rate. 27%. I remember the statistic in the 1960s, the early 60s. And my father would rail out against 27% illegitimate birth rate in the, in the black community. He said it's unsustainable. They're going to destroy themselves. Well, now it's 78% illegitimate birth rate in the black community now that they've got all this freedom. Now, I'm not suggesting that segregation and slavery was all, I'm saying it's all evil. I'm not suggesting put them back under. I'm not saying that at all. That's not my point. My point is just because you now have the government saying you're free does not save you from your sins. People sin because they're lost. And, and so they need salvation. They don't need another government program. We have what is infinitely better than sociology or psychology or psychiatry. We have the truth. And there's one gospel for a poor black man or a rich white man or, or, or an uneducated uh, Indian or a, 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 a deaf, blind, and mute uh, European. It's the same gospel. And we have to treat people with, especially those that, what did Jesus say to do to your enemies? Now, I'm an enemy to people because they view me as their enemy. I don't view them as my enemy. That's the difference. As much as it lies within you, live peaceably with all men. Meaning you're not always going to be peace with everybody. That doesn't mean you hate them. And that doesn't mean you want them to die or you want them, see, I'm just telling you, this is why we've got the problem we got in this country. And the conservatives are 50, at least 50% of the problem. And nobody will accept fault and nobody will accept blame. And that's why nothing is going to happen. And I fear with every fiber of my being, this country is going to rip right, right down the middle. And understand when that happens, we will not be better off. We will be infinitely worse off than we are right now. But I just, I just, I don't think people want democracy. I don't think people want, because it has responsibility as well as freedom. It doesn't just have freedom, it has responsibilities. But it means to treat, look at people with dignity and respect and realize that when you look at that drug, drug addict laying in a gutter and he hadn't shaved or taken a bath in three weeks, he's got needle marks all in his arms. That was somebody's little boy at one time. That was somebody's little boy that used to laugh and he bounced him on his knee. And look what Satan has done to that individual. He's made him an animal. Look at that girl taking her clothes off for the pleasure of men. Not for the pleasure of women, for the pleasure of men. You can talk about feminism all you want to. She's entertaining men. That's somebody's daughter. That's somebody's wife or mother. What if it was your daughter? So you, you look at people and, they're, and they've made, look, I, I, I look back on my life, if I had made three decisions differently than I made them, just three, I wouldn't be here right now. I almost did something that I didn't do. I wanted to do something, but I was stopped. I tried to do something, but I wasn't allowed to. 
God interrupted my life. So that's part of what it means for a man to be in the image of God. Now we've gone, I don't know, 150, 250 years into this, and so nobody even remembers what it was all about. Does anybody remember why this country started prison systems? Where'd that idea come from? It came from the Quakers. And the Quakers said, you put them in a place where they can't do anything but think about the wrong they've done, and they'll repent. Well, how's that working out? Number three, man's ability to love and enjoy God. Unlike the rest of creation that carries out God's will unconsciously, man was originally gifted by God with a real and genuine capacity to know God, to love God, and to enjoy God forever. Hallelujah. In all of God's creation, only man has the ability to fellowship with God and to respond to God with glad obedience, worship, and love, which allowed man to originally experience the fullness of joy himself. Unlike the mountains and the stars and the galaxies and the subatomic particles or other land animals, man was originally given the capacity to truly know and understand some important aspects about the one true living God. But as we seek to grasp that truth, we must always keep in mind that man has never known everything about God. The finite can never fully grasp the infinite. But man was able to know enough about God to alter his behavior and submit to him gladly. Man was also able to receive instruction and revelation from God. Now, you look at how God made us, the uniqueness of our creation and how we were walking and with God in the garden in the cool of the day, and we loved God and God loved us, and now we look at the world. Look how far we have fallen. Look at Genesis 2, 19 and 20. I have, I have Sister Charlotte. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. Number four is man's self-determination of will. Now, I, sp I spent a lot of time in this church teaching against that, that that doesn't exist in lost people. They have a will, but it's not free. Okay. But here I'm teaching you that God created us with that in us. In the beginning, before the fall, both Adam and Eve were created by God with a will. They were able to consciously make choices that were unhindered and free in the truest sense of that word. I, I, am I undoing everything I've been trying to teach for 25 years here? No. What's the difference? Why? Before the fall. That's the issue. Before the fall. Before the fall. Before the fall, man possessed no internal lust that had to respond to temptation with lawless acts. So in the beginning, man was two things. He was able to sin, but he was able to not sin. He could do either one. Now, when you're fallen, you are only able to sin. You can't not sin. 
Lost people sin. In their effort to be noble, they sin. In their effort to be nice, they sin. In their effort to do good things, they sin. Because if you do anything other than for the glory of God, it is, it is sin. And lost people don't do anything for the glory of God. Okay, now we say the Shriners Hospital is, is a good thing because they treat babies for free. That's a good thing. And I don't know what the disposition was of the guy or the guys that did that. If it was to the glory of God, then praise God. But if it was to the glory of the Shriners, then it's sin. Danny Thomas started St. Jude's Hospital to the glory of St. Jude. Well, that's not to the glory of God. It's not the same thing. I know Catholics think that's the same. It's not the same thing. But the point I'm trying to make to you is that before the fall, Adam could or could not sin. He had that ability. After the fall, all that he did was sin. When we are born again, we revert back to the way things were before the fall, and we can sin or not sin. We can do either one. When we're in heaven, we will only be able to not sin. We won't be able to sin. We won't want to sin, but we won't be able to sin. Now, why do I say, because before the fall, here's a, a complicated theological question for you. Before the fall, Adam did not have a fallen nature. Before the fall, Adam did not have internal lust. So why did Adam sin? I know why I sin. Satan comes to tempt me. And the lust that is already in me sees that temptation as an opportunity to do what I want to do anyway. And so I take him up on his offer. That's why I sin. Why did Adam sin? He didn't have any internal lust. He didn't like the way God was doing things. Why? He wanted to be God. Why? I'm trying to get to why. I know that's all true. Why? He wasn't satisfied. Why? Why? Why did he want to? He was with God. Well, that's why I say that. But what, that's trying to explain it. The answer is we don't know. Nobody knows. Nobody on earth knows. The Bible doesn't tell us. The Bible does not. Well, I'm just trying to emphasize the point that there's some things that we don't know because God hadn't revealed it. Well, Amen. So you know uh, how good grace is. Earlier this morning, you and I were talking about uh, the grace of God. Uh, uh, unless there was sin in the world, he could not. He could not. not uh, he could not manifest grace unless there was sin because Jesus and the Holy Spirit didn't need it. Right. right. So he allowed sin to be in the world. He allowed suffering to be in the world. He allowed evil to be in the world. He allowed wickedness to be in the world so that the greatness of the glory of his grace would be displayed and seen and magnified and rejoiced and celebrated and, uh, and, and admired forever. Without evil, there can't be good. It's impossible for there to be good without evil because everything would be good if there wasn't any evil. And so if everything is good, then you have no way of understanding it. If everything was purple, 
how would you describe blue? If everything was, everything tasted the same, how would you explain black and chicken? It all tastes the same. It tastes like chicken, tastes like chicken, tastes like chicken. Everything tastes like chicken. Human beings taste like chicken. Frogs taste like chicken. Give me a break. If everything tastes like chicken, let's just, let's just eat the chicken. But I'm just saying, so God created, God allowed for sin to exist, and he allowed for wickedness to exist and suffering and inhuman treatment. He allows men to do that. He allows evil men to do that, not because it's okay and not because they won't go to hell for it, but he allows it so that the, 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 the greatness of the glory of his grace can be seen and displayed and marveled at and rejoiced and celebrated forever. Nothing magnifies God more than Jesus and nothing magnifies Jesus more than Jesus saving sinners. That is the epitome of all that God ever chose and did in the universe. That's why I don't believe in extraterrestrial beings. I don't think there's anything out there at all. Nothing. Because God would have to become like one of them in order to save them. So he'd have to be like a green three-headed monster with no feet. In order. I just don't believe that. The greatest manifestation of the glory of God is Jesus Christ saving sinners by God's grace. And so that's why, you know, what are those things that fly through the air and all that? I, I, I think they're demons, but that remains to be seen. So Brother Vern, Genesis 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she, also, she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Okay, now here's the here's the there's syllogisms. Here here we go. Man could sin or not sin. Satan came and tempted Eve. Eve did not have internal lust, but Eve wanted to sin, and she was deceived. Let me put it this way: Eve was deceived. Adam wanted to sin. So Adam's standing there watching his wife become deceived by the serpent, and he made no move to stop it. He made no effort to protect her. He didn't, he didn't care about her enough to, 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 to get Satan to go on and leave his wife alone. He didn't tell Eve, Eve, you can't do that. Um, and then he ate the fruit with her. But the sin is on Adam's part, not Eve's, because Adam was responsible. We're going to get into that next time, I suppose. But why did she eat? She had God. It says she saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. Those are all wonderful, good, uh, beneficial things, right? No bad thing in there, is it? Right. And so that's how what deception makes sin look like. You're going to be benefited when you do this. You're going to be helped. You're going to be better than you are now. You're going to be able to do more. You're going to be able to enjoy more. You're going to have more fun. You're going to, you're going to whatever. And, and that's when you, when you look at what God called sin in a way that's beneficial to yourself, you're already deceived. That's what deception is. Make sin look attractive. So temptation is not come do what I want you to do so we can all go to hell together. 
That wouldn't fool anybody. I've got a pitchfork and I've got a tail and I've got horns and I want you to serve me. That would not fool anybody. But I want to make you wise. I know that you're restricted here in the garden and I can help you. Because God's mean and God doesn't want you to experience the full realm of your of your being, so let me help you. And if you just eat this fruit, you'll be like God. And she bought into that lie. So we have the voice of the world calling to us. We have the voice of other things calling to us, telling us if you'll just do this, we'll be better. If you only can do this, then you'll have more fun. If you it, Serving God is, is terrible. It's a very straight, narrow path, and there's a lot of misery in it. So why don't we go have fun and we do this over here, we'll be better off. That's the lie of the world. And it's the lie that money gives. It's the lie that sex gives. It's the lie that other people give. It's the lie that other things give. And when you buy into the lie, not only will you not be satisfied, but you'll lose what you have. And then you'll, you'll, you'll immediately try to make it up. You'll immediately try to do what they did. You'll sew fig leaves together. And you'll, you'll try to make yourself acceptable in God's sight by what you do for yourself without God, without Jesus, without repentance. Because to repent, you have to admit you're wrong. So in reality, it is the pride of man, the arrogance, the self-righteousness of man that stops people from being saved, mostly. They really don't believe that they're that bad. And even if they were that bad, they really don't believe God's that angry. And even if they were, he is that angry, they really don't believe God's going to throw them into hell. And he really will. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. We ask God that you would write it upon the tables of our heart, that we will know your word, love your word be converted by your word, embrace your word, so we may embrace Jesus and love him and follow him and rejoice in him and celebrate him forever. In Jesus' name.